We come this morning to the seventh message in our series on the atonement of Christ, a series which I've entitled, Oh, Perfect Redemption. We have been celebrating the perfection of the atonement that Christ has accomplished on our behalf, rejoicing that we have such a Savior who has accomplished so glorious a work of salvation for us, a Savior who left nothing undone, a Savior who has borne the full weight of our sin up to Calvary and has extinguished our guilt before God. A Savior who drank the full measure of the wrath of God that burned hot against us so that we would never have to bear it ourselves. A Savior who abolished in his flesh the enmity, the hostility that existed between us and God by reconciling us in his body. A Savior who left no stone unturned in his mission to rescue his bride from the damning effects of our sin. In every way that sin afflicts us, we have found Christ to be perfectly suited to our need. We have defiled ourselves and become guilty. But we find that Christ Jesus, our great high priest, has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. His atonement is a perfect expiation, an offering of sacrifice that takes away our sin and our guilt. We have incurred the holy wrath of God Almighty. Our sin has roused the anger of perfect justice and justice demands that that righteous wrath be exercised upon those who have sinned against this holy God. And yet we find that Christ Jesus, our great high priest, has made propitiation for the sins of his people, that by receiving in himself the full exercise of the Father's wrath against the sins of his people, Jesus satisfied the Father's righteous anger against our sin and turned away God's wrath from us who were bound to suffer under it for eternity." We have alienated ourselves from the God we were created to love and enjoy. Our sin made us enemies with the greatest of all friends. It erected a barrier of hostility between God and man and separated us from him. But in Christ Jesus, we find the reconciliation that overcomes that hostility. His atoning death destroys that enmity. It makes peace and it restores us to fellowship with the God we were created for every need that our sin creates for us Jesus our Savior overcomes by his glorious work of atonement we have every reason to sing oh perfect redemption and what I've been endeavoring to do is to defend the perfection of that redemption, the glory of that atonement from an unlikely enemy. And that enemy is what is undoubtedly a noble desire of some Christians to universalize the extent of that glorious atonement. Out of what I believe is a sincere desire to magnify the grace of Christ, Many claim that Jesus has accomplished this glorious work of atonement for everybody, for all, without exception. 
for every single individual who has ever lived or will live. You say, well, why is that an enemy? What, why is a universal extent of the atonement the enemy of a perfect atonement? And the answer we've been giving is because if the atonement is something that Jesus accomplishes for all without exception, and yet not all without exception are saved, then we have emptied the atonement of its inherent power to save. If Jesus' death takes away sin and guilt, and a great portion of those for whom he died perish in their sin and retain their guilt for eternity, well, then Jesus' death does not really take away sin and guilt, does it? If Jesus' death satisfies the wrath of God and a great portion of those for whom he died suffer the wrath of God for eternity, then Jesus' death does not really satisfy God's wrath, does it? If Jesus' death reconciles God to man, establishing peace between them, and a great portion for those whom Jesus died are separated from God forever in the eternal lake of fire, well, then Jesus' death does not really reconcile God to man, does it? You see, all of a, all of a sudden, this perfect, powerful redemption starts to look like a paltry, puny redemption. It's robbed of its efficacy. Instead of accomplishing realities, it provides possibilities. And therefore, it thrusts the weight of the decisive, determinative cause of salvation back upon the shoulders of the sinner. The atonement has been reimagined, not as that by which God saves us, but that by which God enables us to save ourselves. The great theologian J.I. Packer summed this up well in what is a now famous paragraph, one that I'm sure I'll quote again before the series is over. Packer writes this, We want, rightly, to proclaim Christ as Savior, yet we end up saying that Christ, having made salvation possible, has left us to become our own saviors. It comes about in this way. We want to magnify the saving grace of God and the saving power of Christ, so we declare that God's redeeming love extends to everyone and that Christ has died to save every man. And we proclaim that the glory of divine mercy is to be measured by these facts, to be measured by the breadth. And then in order to avoid universalism, where everybody is saved, we have to deprecate all that we were previously extolling and to explain that after all, nothing that God and Christ have done can save us unless we add something to it. The decisive factor that actually saves us is our own believing. Packer says, what we say comes to this, that Christ saves us with our help. And what that means when one thinks it out is this, that we save ourselves with Christ's help. Herman Bovink, the great Dutch Reformed theologian, says what they gain in quantity, and then only seemingly, they lose in quality. When we universalize the extent of the atonement without universalizing the extent of salvation itself and saying everybody goes to heaven, well, then we have to deprecate the atonement we had been previously extolling. We have to drain it of its power. We have to empty it of its sovereign glory. 
When you universalize the extent of the atonement, you must necessarily undermine the efficacy of the atonement. And it's that enemy, that well-meaning but misguided proposal of a universal atonement from which I've been seeking to defend the perfect redemption of Christ in this series. See, if we are going to sing at the top of our lungs from the depths of our hearts in praise of a perfect redemption, we must necessarily sing of a particular redemption. A redemption which, though it doesn't extend to every single individual in the world, nevertheless brings every single individual it was accomplished for all the way home to heaven. An atonement of unlimited power and perfect efficacy must necessarily be limited in extent to those who actually enjoy its benefits. And who are they? They are the elect of God. They are those whom the Father chose in eternity past, those who are eventually granted the gifts of repentance and faith in Christ. This is about him. It's not about us. Well, in addition to an expiatory sacrifice, a propitiation, and a reconciliation, Scripture also characterizes the atonement as a work of redemption. It's in the title of the series, But it uses this terminology of redemption, of ransom. And what this means is that the blood of Christ is shed as the payment of a ransom price which effects the release of sinners from the bondage of our sin and from the curse of the law. Most fundamentally, that's what redemption means. To redeem someone is to secure their release from bondage by the payment of a price. And so this morning, we will study the atonement as a redemption. And we'll do it in three points. First, we'll consider the nature of redemption. Second, the efficacy of redemption. And third, the particularity of redemption. Well, first then, let's look at the nature of redemption. And the concept of redemption is a fundamentally commercial concept. One of the Greek words that's translated as redemption are the cognates agorazo and ex agorazo, both which come from the word agora, which means marketplace. You hear some people speak of agoraphobia, which means they have the fear of being out in public spaces. So ex agorazo means to redeem, to, to purchase out of the marketplace. Another word for redemption is lutrao, and it speaks of purchase by the payment of a ransom. And so when we put these two together, we discover that a key concept of redemption is slavery. Slaves were redeemed by the payment of a ransom. But the rich imagery depicted by this concept of redemption doesn't begin with the death of Christ. It has its foundation in the Old Testament. And so to properly understand the significance of Christ's death as redemption, it's necessary to examine the Old Testament usage of these terms. And some of the first, we can turn to Exodus 13. Some of the first occurrences of the language of redemption come from the book of Exodus And it speaks of paying a ransom price for the redemption of someone's life. There's so many places we could go. We'll start in chapter 13. In Exodus 13, God demands that Israel consecrate every firstborn animal and every firstborn son to him. 
After the deliverance from Egypt, every firstborn animal, every firstborn son was to be sacrificed to Yahweh. But if the firstborn was allowed to live, its life was required to be redeemed by the, by the payment of a price. So Exodus 13, 13. But every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. So this animal is going to die unless it's redeemed with the payment of a price, in this case, a lamb. And he says, and every firstborn of man among your sons, you shall redeem. In other words, don't sacrifice to death every firstborn son. Pay to the Lord a price of ransom, of redemption for him. There was a death sentence from which a person could be released by redemption. In Exodus 21, verses 28 to 32, Moses gives the case where an ox gores a person to death, and if the ox was previously in the habit of doing so, the owner as well as the ox was to be put to death. But if the family of the one killed by the ox doesn't insist that the owner die, he can demand a ransom payment for the redemption of the man's life. Exodus 21:30. If a ransom is demanded of him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is demanded of him. Now, the first extended instruction on the laws of redemption in Scripture comes in Leviticus 25. You can go ahead and turn to Leviticus 25. It addresses the case when an Israelite had become so poor that he had to sell himself into slavery, God's law made provision for him to be redeemed out of slavery by his family members. So listen to this concept of redemption, Leviticus 25, starting in verse 47. Now, if the means of a stranger or of a sojourner with you becomes sufficient and a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to him as to sell himself to a stranger who's sojourning with you or to the descendants of a stranger's family, then he shall have redemption right after he has been sold. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him or one of his blood relatives from his family may redeem him or if he prospers, he may redeem himself. He then with his purchaser shall calculate from the year when he sold himself to him up to the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall correspond to the number of years. Verse 51, if there are still many years, he shall refund part of his purchase price in proportion to them for his own redemption. And if few years remain until the year of Jubilee, he shall so calculate with him. In proportion to his years, he is to refund the amount for his redemption. And so you hear this language of purchaser, of price, purchase price, which is the same word for ransom, and the word refund. This is the language of the market, of buying and selling. The family of the one who had been sold into slavery could redeem him by the payment of a ransom price. And by far the most famous example of redemption in the Old Testament is the Lord's deliverance of his people from uh, out of their bondage of slavery in Egypt. You can turn back to Exodus. Eventually we'll land here in Exodus 6. But in Exodus 2, verse 23, the narrator says, the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage and they cried out. And their cry for help because of the bondage rose up to God. 
Exodus 2.24, so God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Israel is in bondage in Egypt. God hears their cries. He remembers his covenant to make a great nation out of Abraham's descendants. And so he purposes to redeem Israel from their slavery. And so in Exodus 6, 5 and 6, God tells Moses what he's going to do. He says, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. Look at it, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And then reflecting on this, Moses says to Israel in Deuteronomy 7, verse 8, Yahweh redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so redemption referred to the deliverance of slaves from bondage. Well, why would the writers of the New Testament cast Christ's atoning work in those terms? The answer is because all mankind, by nature, as a result of our fall into sin, all mankind are born into the bondage of slavery. I wonder if you think of yourselves that way. I wonder if you consider how striking the implications of such a notion is. Scripture testifies that every one of us enters into this world as a slave to sin. Jesus says in John 8, 34, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. There is no such thing as a casual relationship with sin. There is no such thing as a good person who just does some bad things once in a while. If you commit sin, you are a slave of sin. 2 Peter two nineteen says, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved and certainly man has been overcome by sin Romans 6 6 says that we Christians were crucified with Christ that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin which means we were at some point Romans 6 17 speaks of Christians before they were saved and says you were slaves of sin so consider the scripture's estimate of the natural man. We are so beholden to the lust of the flesh, to the lust of the eyes, to the boastful pride of life that we are properly said to be enslaved to our sin. And you're so enslaved that your slave master has deceived you into loving your slavery. You don't even know to groan under the afflictions of your bondage like the Israelites did in Egypt. You love your chains. And more than this, you are condemned to die because of your sin, not just because your ox may have gored someone to death, but because you yourself are guilty of committing murder in your heart. Jesus says in Matthew 5, if you've been sinfully angry with anyone, you have broken the commands of God, and so the wrath of God abides upon you. Eternal spiritual death is what awaits you. Galatians 3.10 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. 
For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. See, for those who seek to attain righteousness by their works, by their good deeds, by being a good person, the law requires not just goodness, the law requires perfection. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. And then, because Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, all come under the curse of the law. And so, because this is the predicament that each one finds ourselves in, Scripture says that Christ has come to redeem his people out from the bondage of their slavery, to purchase us out of the slave market of sin by the payment of the ransom price of his own life, to redeem us from the curse of the law, Galatians 3.13, by becoming a curse for us, by bearing the penal sanctions of that curse in our place. And so in Galatians 4.4, Paul says, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Slaves and now sons. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus says it himself in Mark ten forty five. for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The mission of his incarnation was a work of ransom of which his own life was the ransom price that would be given in the stead of the many sinners whose freedom he purchased. And so Paul tells the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6.20, you have been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God in your body. In his farewell address to the Ephesian elders at Miletus, Paul says in Acts 20.28 that God purchased his church with his own blood. Well, God has no blood. God is spirit, but Jesus has blood and Jesus is God and he's purchased his church. The apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 that we were redeemed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Christian, yours was a slavery so unbreakable that the most precious metals and stones on the planet could not suffice to release you. But our kinsman redeemer does not bring perishable things for the ransom price. He brings his own imperishable precious blood the blood of a sinless substitute, the blood of the God man which perfectly avails for everyone for whom it is shed. And so Hebrews 9, 11, and 12 says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 
This blood was so precious that it purchased eternal redemption for a multitude of sinners. And the Apostle John records the saints' heavenly worship of the risen Christ for his atoning work of redemption in Revelation 5, 9. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Do you see? You are a slave to your lusts and passions sold into bondage to sin, so enslaved to your taskmaster that you've been deceived to love and even desire your slavery. And if you had the inclination, you have no means by which to purchase your freedom. And in Christ, and yet in Christ, you have the precious blood of a spotless lamb paid as the price, the ransom price for your redemption. If there are any who are outside of Christ this morning, you are welcome to that precious blood. You labor in the bondage of your sin with no means to free you, and yet here is a redeemer. Here is one who brings a price worthy and far above worthy of the cost that it would take to save your soul from hell. Why would you cling to your death? Why would you hold on to your, sla- your slavery? Why would you sit in a cell that could be open this very moment? Turn from your sin. Get on your face before this holy God and tell him that you receive Christ, that you trust in his works, you repudiate your own works, that you trust in his death, in his life, in his resurrection, and you give all of your life away to follow after him. If you do that this morning, your bonds will be released. The chains will fall off. You will rise, go forth, and follow after Christ in freedom. And then take note, Christ has redeemed us, number one, from the penalty of sin. Ephesians 1, 7, Paul says, in Christ we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses. And so if redemption is accomplished by means of the atoning blood of Christ, if it consists in forgiveness, then Christ has died to redeem his people from the penalty of sin, the curse of the law, which was required to break over our heads for eternity in hell, has been broken. And yet Christ has also redeemed us, number two, from the power of sin in the flesh, not only from its penalty, but also from the enslaving power of sin. Romans six eighteen says, you've become slaves of righteousness. You've become enslaved to God. Because you have been redeemed from sin's power, and not only its penalty, you can on that ground practically day by day put off sin and put on righteousness. Sin shall not be master over you, Romans 6:14, for you are not under law, but under grace. Christ has redeemed you from the curse of the law. And because the power of sin is the law, 1 Corinthians 15:56, the dominion of sin is broken. You are free, Christian, to walk in holiness after the pattern of Christ himself. 
to no, no, I can't. I'm just my sin. It binds me. No, this blood has put the chains off. The power of sin is in the law and the law has been satisfied. And then in addition to the penalty of sin and the power of sin, several texts of scripture speaks of man's redemption in an eschatological sense in which we are finally freed, number three, even from the presence of sin. In Romans 8, 23, Paul comments on how believers wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Jesus calls that final day your redemption in Luke 21, 28. Paul calls it the day of redemption in Ephesians 4.30. And that's not to suggest that the redemption purchased on the cross is somehow incomplete or inefficacious until the believer's glorification. It simply speaks to the fact that Christ's perfectly efficacious redemption applied to our souls at justification will also finally be applied to our bodies in glorification. In other words, The cross has secured the consummation of our salvation no less than its inauguration. Redemption, brothers and sisters, brings us all the way home. It delivers us from the penalty of our bondage, from the power of our bondage, and one day even the presence of our bondage. And so that is the nature of redemption. Securing the release of captives from slavery by the payment of a price. Secondly, let's consider the efficacy of redemption. The efficacy or effectiveness of redemption. And again, this is important because those who would argue for a universal redemption that Christ has redeemed all people without exception, they must necessarily argue for an inefficacious redemption. And they do. I'm not just saying they have to. They do. One proponent of a universal redemption, the founder and first president of Dallas Theological Seminary, Lewis Sperry Chafer, famously writes this, there is then a redemption which pays the price but does not of necessity release the slave, end quote. They say Christ provides redemption but does not definitively secure the freedom of the captive. They need to believe for that to happen. But does scripture give us any warrant for that kind of concept of redemption, which pays the price but doesn't release the slave? The answer is absolutely not. The redemption which scripture speaks of is a perfectly efficacious redemption, a redemption that always succeeds in delivering the slaves from their bondage. And so let's revisit some of those texts and see how scripture consistently strikes this note of the efficacy of redemption. Consider those first examples from Exodus 13 where an animal or even a firstborn son has their life spared from death because, the payment of, because of the payment of a, re- a redemption price. Uh, and from Exodus 21 where the owner of an ox is redeemed from death through a ransom payment. It simply cannot come to pass except by the most egregious miscarriage of justice that a man could pay the redemption price for his firstborn son's life and yet that son be killed. That is contrary to the law of God. It simply cannot be that the ox owner pays the price for his redemption and the other man's family who died puts that man to death anyway. 
The law of God does not allow for such a thing. When the ransom price was paid and a man's life was redeemed, that man went free. Or consider the case of the kinsman redeemer in Leviticus 25. Remember, the family members of a man who had been sold into slavery could redeem him out of his slavery by the payment of a ransom price. What did that mean? It means, it meant that when a price was paid, of necessity, the family member who had been sold into slavery would be released and go free. There was no degree of tentativeness or uncertainty about that. There was absolutely no scenario in which the kinsman redeemer would pay the slave owner the ransom price and his family member remain in bondage. It is simply unthinkable. Imagine for a moment if a friend of yours found himself in trouble with the law. He's been taken to jail, arraigned before a judge, and has his bail set for $5,000. Your friend has no money to pay, but you hear all this, you discuss it with your wife, and you both decide you can spare that amount of money for the sake of your friend's well-being. And so you take the money down to the courthouse, you pay the $5,000 bail, and then you go back home. And as you come through the door, your wife asks you, so how'd it go? You say, great. She says, you paid the bail? Yep, sure did. No hiccups or anything? No, it all went quite smoothly. Oh, good. Well, where's Tommy? He's in jail. What? I thought you said you paid the bail money. I did. But oh, honey, I forgot to tell you, there is a redemption that pays the price, but that does not of necessity release the prisoner. What kind of redemption is that, friends? What kind? It's a worthless redemption. A redemption that is inefficacious. A redemption which pays the price but does not of necessity release the prisoner is a worthless redemption. It's useless. That guy might as well have taken his $5,000, went to the middle of his, his, his lawn, and lit it on fire. But is that what we are to make of the ransom price of Christ's blood? That it's worthless? That Christ would treat his own blood so dishonorably? To regard it as so cheap as to lay it down but not receive what he meant to purchase by it? Of course not. Peter says, you were redeemed with precious blood, blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. See, the blood of Christ is precious. And when you suggest that he could have laid down that precious blood as a ransom payment to redeem sinners, and yet those sinners for whom he paid could remain in bondage forever to their sin, you are calling the redemption that Christ accomplished through his precious blood worthless. And even worse, you're saying, you know what adds worth? You know what makes that blood worthy? Our decision. John Owen says it memorably. He writes this, Redemption is the freeing of a man from misery by the intervention of a ransom. Now, when a ransom is paid for the liberty of a prisoner, is it not all the justice in the world that he should have and enjoy the liberty so purchased for him by a valuable consideration? Can it possibly be conceived that there should be a redemption of men and those men not redeemed? That a price should be paid and the purchase not consummated? A price is paid for all, yet few delivered. The redemption of all consummated, yet few of them redeemed. 
the judge satisfied, the jailer conquered, and yet the prisoners enthralled. It is unthinkable. It is a worthless redemption. And more than what kind of redemption is that? What kind of redeemer is that? The man who pays the bail money but fails to release his friend from jail is an inept fool. How utterly deprived of wisdom would such, would such a man have to be to take $5,000 of his hard-earned money to hand it over to the authorities for the specific purpose of releasing his friend from his bonds, but then be content to leave that courthouse and go home without his friend? Brothers and sisters, do we dare take Christ to be such a fool? He who is himself the wisdom of God, would he lay down such a priceless sum as his precious blood and be content not to receive what he paid for? Of course not. Charles Spurgeon puts it well. He says, a redemption which pays a price but does not ensure that which is purchased. A redemption which calls Christ a substitute for the sinner but yet which allows the person to suffer is altogether unworthy of our apprehension of Almighty God. No, when God undertakes to redeem his people from Egypt, they come out of slavery. The Exodus was not a promise merely to provide for Israel's redemption or to make Israel redeemable upon certain conditions for them to fulfill, but to effectively deliver them out of their bonds. Exodus 14.30 says, Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. He saved them. He didn't just make them savable. The redemption with which God redeems his people is so efficacious that those who are said to have been redeemed and ransomed by Yahweh will shout joyfully in Messiah's kingdom with everlasting joy upon their heads. Isaiah 35.9 and 10, listen to the way that the, the God speaks of the redeemed. He says, no lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there and the ransomed of Yahweh will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Not just the subset of the redeemed, who chose to activate the worthless atonement's potential, the redeemed and ransomed will return to that land with gladness and joy. There is no hint of potentiality. There is no hint of bare provision in the Old Testament's concept of redemption. To redeem is to efficaciously deliver the captive from slavery. And so when we come to the New Testament and we find the same terminology of ransom and redemption being used to describe Christ's atonement, we have every reason to expect that that same notion of efficacy inheres in his redemptive death as we found in the Old Testament. And it's what we find. Again, Ephesians 1.7 defines the redemption we have through Christ's blood as the forgiveness of sins. The bondage that Christ releases us from by the shedding of his blood and redemption is the bondage of our need to pay for our own sins. Redemption does not merely provide for forgiveness. Redemption is forgiveness. It actually accomplishes it. Acts 20, 28 says, Christ the God-man purchased the church of God with his own blood. 
What's the meaning? Christ pays the price of the church's freedom so that our lives might not be lost to sin's penalty. His blood is shed rather than our lives be lost forever. Which means if the shedding of blood has taken place, the loss of sinners for, of, of the sinners for whom it was shed cannot take place. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says we've been bought with a price. It doesn't say that a price has been paid. We were bought with the price that has been paid. Christ obtained something by laying down the price of his shed blood. Redemption doesn't just mean paying a price. It means that the one who pays the price actually gains possession of what he paid for. And Hebrews 9.15 reminds us of that by telling us the very purpose for which Christ died was to effect this redemption. Hebrews 9.15, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of transgressions, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Christ doesn't pay to make it possible for the called to receive the eternal inheritance. He pays the price in order to make it so. In Galatians 3, where we read in verse 13 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, we see the result of that in verse 14, Galatians 3, 14. It says, in order that, Christ redeemed us in order that, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The whole purpose of redemption is that we would actually receive that promise, not that the promise would simply be made available to us. The redemption of Christ, listen, does not hang suspended on whether or not we will have faith. The redemption of Christ purchases the very faith by which we will lay hold of all of those benefits of redemption. It's not Christ dies for you and then you get the benefits if you believe. It's Christ dies for his people, including purchasing the faith that will actually let them lay hold of those benefits. And so the result of redemption is that those who should have been cursed now go free. It doesn't purchase redeemability. It purchases freedom, redemption. So I'll put it simply, Galatians 3.13 or 3.13 and 14. If Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, but we must still undergo the curse of the law, then Christ did not redeem us from the curse of the law. But dear people, there are those who undergo that curse. And so what conclusion can we come to but that Christ did not redeem them? that precisely because Christ's redemption is efficacious, it's particular and not universal. And so since Scripture defines the redemption that Christ accomplished by his death as the efficacious securing of freedom by the payment of a price, and since that redemption must necessarily issue in freedom from sin, slavery to God and righteousness, the reception of the Holy Spirit, and the inheritance of eternal glory, it cannot be that such redemption was accomplished for all without exception. Those purchased by the precious blood of Christ can never fail to enjoy the freedom obtained for them by their substitute. But as sad as it is to think about, many do fail to enjoy that freedom. Many do perish under the curse of the law. And if they must suffer that curse, it cannot be said that Christ has redeemed them from that curse. The redemption Christ accomplished is particular 
and not universal. And so that leads me to a third point, the particularity of redemption, the particularity of redemption. And the point to make here is that the particularity of redemption is not only an implication of the efficacy of of redemption like I've just proven. No, it's also the explicit teaching of Scripture. Just like efficacy, particularity is inherent to the concept of redemption from its earliest occurrences in the Bible. And you see this in the narrative of Israel's redemption from slavery in Egypt just from the fact that it is Israel's redemption and not the Egyptians' redemption. We see the result of that in graphic detail in Exodus 14.30. I read it before, the first half of the verse we read of the efficacy of redemption. Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hands of the Egyptians. But then we read of the particularity of redemption in the second half of Exodus 14.30 And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. This was not a universal redemption that God had accomplished out of Egypt. The Israelites had safely crossed the Red Sea and the Egyptians were drowned. Yahweh had redeemed his people and not all without exception. In fact, Throughout the narrative of the plagues, Scripture insists upon the distinction that God makes between his people, the people he will redeem, and the people who are not his people, whom he will not redeem. Let's go back to Exodus, and let's look at chapter 9. All throughout the, the plagues, you see this distinction that God makes between his people and the people of Egypt. Exodus 9, starting in verse 3, says, Behold, the hand of Yahweh, this is the announcement of the pestilence to come. Behold, the hand of Yahweh will come with a very severe pestilence on your livestock, which are, which are in the field. Verse 4, But Yahweh will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. We see it in the announcement with the death of the firstborn in chapter 11. And verse 5, he says, All the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the child of Pharaoh to the slave girl to the cattle. Verse 7, But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. God distinguishes between his people and those who are not his people, between those whom he's chosen and between those whom he's not, between the elect and the non-elect. But what's particularly uh, interesting about this is that the particularity that's evident in the announcement of the plague of the flies in uh, Exodus 8, uh, starting in verse 21. Turn back to Exodus 8. It says, if you do not let my, God says to Pharaoh, if you do not let my people go, behold, the houses of the Egyptians will be full of swarms of flies. But, verse 22, on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people are living, so that no swarms of flies will be there, in order that you may know that I, Yahweh, am in the midst of the land. And then look at verse 23. I will put a division between my people and your people. And while at first that looks just like the same thing that we see in 9.4 and 11.7, Moses uses a different word here. The word division in verse 23 is the Hebrew word 
paduth. And paduth comes from the verb panda, one of the most popular Old Testament terms for redemption. In fact, if you look up paduth in the standard Hebrew dictionaries, you'll find the gloss ransom or redemption as the definition. Terms only used three other times in the Old Testament. In Psalm 111.9 and Psalm 130, verse 7, it's translated redemption. And in Isaiah 50, verse 2, it's translated ransom. So in Moses' mind then, the phrase, I will set a ransom price, is synonymous with the phrase, I will put a division between. You see, particularity, God's distinguishing between his chosen people and those he's not chosen is inherent to the idea of redemption. One author makes this very observation from this text. He writes this, God was redeeming his people and thus making a distinction between them and between those who were not his people. This places particularity at the very heart of God's redemption of his people from Egypt. So at the most foundational demonstration of God's redemption of his people in all of the Old Testament, the one that most perfectly prefigured the redemption that Christ would accomplish in his cross, the Exodus, particularity is at the very heart of it. And the same is true of the other examples we looked at. Exodus 21, if the owner of the ox paid the ransom price for the redemption of his life, it was his life that was spared. Not everybody without exception. In Leviticus 25, if a kinsman redeemed a family member out of slavery, it was that family member and not anyone else, let alone everyone else, that was released from bondage. And so we see that same particularity when we come to the New Testament and read of Christ's redemption. Jesus gives his life, Matthew 20, 28, as a ransom for many in Revelation 5, 9, Christ is praised by the heavenly host for having purchased for God with your blood. There's the concept of redemption, purchased by the payment of a price. But whom did he purchase? Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And that's interesting because if John believed in a universal redemption, if that Christ had in fact redeemed every person in the history of the world without exception, I can't think of any reason why John wouldn't have said, for you purchased with your blood every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Why would he add men from every tribe? Because it only makes sense if, if Jesus didn't purchase every tribe, but men from, men out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, all without distinction, not all without exception. Now, you say, okay, listen, I've heard all you've been saying about the inherent efficacy and particularity of redemption, but isn't there a text of Scripture that speaks of Christ's buying or redeeming certain false teachers who end up finally denying Christ? Turn to 2 Peter 2.1. 2 Peter 2.1 is a verse that is often proposed as the, the chief problem passage for particular redemption, at least one of them. And there Peter says, but false prophets also arose among the people, uh, the people of Israel, just as there will also be false teachers among you, church, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. What about that text? 
These false teachers deny Christ, bring swift destruction on themselves. Obviously, they're obviously not among the elect. But then it says Christ bought them. Same word for redeemed them. And if that's the case, then there are at least some for whom Christ died that were not elect. And so the atonement's not limited to the elect. Well, that's an important objection. It deserves an answer longer than I can give it this morning. But suffice it to say that the answer cannot be what the universal redemptionist proposes, that Christ has paid the ransom price of his blood in order to redeem all people without exception, but only those who appropriate the provision by faith experience its benefits. And these people didn't appropriate it, and so therefore they don't get it. That would be to say that there is a redemption which pays the price, but does not of necessity release the slave. And we've already seen what Scripture makes of that position. It would have been unrecognizable to the biblical authors. Any kind of quote-unquote redemption which leaves the one redeemed in his state of slavery is not the perfect redemption that Christ accomplished on the cross, which Scripture uniformly presents as an efficacious accomplishment that secures the release of those for whom the price is paid. But what about this text? Well, that objection fails to consider all of what Peter says about these false teachers. Peter not only says that the master bought them, he also says in verse 20 of chapter 2 that they escaped the defilements of the world and they had the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in verse 21, that they have known the way of righteousness all of which sound like genuine descriptions of true saving faith. And yet, these folks don't say that these false teachers lost their salvation. My claim is that in whatever sense these false teachers have been bought by the master, verse 1, in that same sense they have escaped the world, knew Christ, and knew the way of righteousness. And in what sense is that? That they actually got saved and then lost their salvation? No, in the sense that these false teachers professed to be believers, even appeared to be believers for a time, but weren't ever really believers. Verse 1 says these false teachers were among you, that they secretly introduced their destructive heresies into the fellowship. These weren't outsiders who never claimed to be Christians who all of a sudden showed up and began to openly contradict the gospel. No, these men had been former church members, insiders who strayed from the teachings of the apostles. They gave every appearance that they had the saving knowledge of Christ. They professed they belonged to him, they, and then they defected from the fellowship of the faithful, proving that they had never really belonged to Christ in, in the first place. John, 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not all of us. And so Peter can say that they escaped the defilements of the world. But they never really did escape the defilements of the world. Otherwise, we'd have to say that true believers lost their salvation. Peter's speaking of them according to their appearance. They claimed for themselves, they appeared to all others as if they had escaped the defilements of the world. But that was not really so. The same is the case for the designation that they knew the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It certainly had seemed so for a time. They professed so for a time. But time and truth go hand in hand. In reality, it was not so. 
Same with verse 21. They had never had really and truly known the way of righteousness. They had only appeared to have known it. They professed to have known it. You say, but, but isn't that saying scripture means something other than it says? Scripture calls Judas a disciple of Christ. Was he really a disciple of Christ? No. Scripture does often speak according to appearance with the judgment of charity. Peter speaks the same way in 2 Peter 2, 1. These false teachers had never really and truly been bought by the one they once claimed to be their master, but they appeared to have been so redeemed. And so Peter speaks of them according to what they professed. He's saying these false teachers deny the master they claim had bought them. Because Peter sees the concept of Christ dying for someone as synonymous with that person being a Christian. Therefore, 2 Peter 2.1 does not teach that Christ has atoned for the sins of those who will finally perish. And as a result, it provides no support for a universal intention in the atonement, poses no contradiction to the doctrine of particular redemption. And so we have beheld then from God's word the nature of efficacy and particularity of the redemption that Christ accomplished in his atoning death on the cross. And I return at the end to where I started at the beginning. This is the redemption that we need, friends. We do not need a redemption that pays the price but does not of necessity release the slave. We don't need a redemption that leaves us imprisoned. We we need the redemption that releases us that frees us, that breaks the bonds of our slavery to sin and delivers us into the freedom of the slavery to righteousness. And the only kind of redemption that does that is an efficacious redemption. And the only way you can have an efficacious redemption is if it is a particular redemption. And so I plead with you to protect the particularity of redemption, Grace Life. Protect it in your thinking. Protect it in your evangelism. Don't be duped into thinking that you're magnifying the atonement by claiming it was for everybody. You're not magnifying it. You're watering it down. What you think you gain in quantity, you lose in quality. You get a wide bridge that gets you halfway across the, the, the river instead of a narrow bridge that gets you all the way across. And just as a practical illustration of that, you know, I get folks from time to time saying, okay, I get the idea, but like, what does it matter to us? And I'm just thinking, oh, what does it matter? Do you people pray? (laughs) You know, I was reading this week a passage from John Flavel's masterpiece, The Fountain of Life. And in one of the sermons recorded in that book, Flavel counsels doubting believers to plead for assurance on the ground that the preciousness of Christ's blood was was shed as the redemption price for their soul. He says, when you're doubtful of your salvation, pray this way. Lord, I am not only thy creature, but thy redeemed creature, one that thou hast bought with a great price. Oh, I have cost thee dear. For my sake, Christ came from thy bosom. And is it imaginable that after that thou hast in such a costly way, even by the expense of the precious blood of Christ, redeemed me, thou shouldst at last exclude me? Will God be content to recover my soul to himself by the death of his own dear son and after all this cast it away as if there were nothing in all this? 
Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. I know thou wilt have a respect to the work of thy hands, especially to a redeemed creature upon which thou hast expended so great sums of love which thou hast bought at so dear a rate. Do you hear how he prays? Father, your own dear son has died for me. He has shed his infinitely precious blood to redeem me. Could father and son lay down such a great price to purchase my soul and fail to get what you paid for? Can such a priceless sum as the blood of the God-man be paid for the prisoner's release and he remain in bondage forever? No, that's unthinkable. Christ's blood is not worthless. Christ's blood is precious, and therefore I know it will bring me all the way home. What a glorious foundation upon which to stake your life, your soul, your eternity. So much better than the quicksand of assessing the quality of your faith. Friend, your faith will always be imperfect until the day you see Christ face to face. It will always be variable. But praise God that it is not the strength of your faith that saves you. It is the strength of the Savior that your faith lays hold of that saves you. It is the preciousness of the blood of that Savior to whom faith unites you that saves you. And that is what the particularity of redemption safeguards. A universal redemptionist can't pray that prayer. Jesus, you died for me. You shed your precious blood for me. Well, so there's a bunch of people I died for in hell. That destroys the assurance of the doubting, tender-conscienced believer that now is flung to say, okay, well, have I, have I believed well enough yet? I didn't believe so well this week. No, have I believed in the perfect righteousness of Christ? Have I trusted that the, the price of his blood is sufficient to cancel all my debts to redeem me out of every link of that chain of the slavery to sin? That's where all of your hope is. That's where all of your, your foundation and comfort is. It's in a perfect redemption, which is necessarily a particular redemption. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we exalt your name. How, as we peer in week after week to the accomplishments of your cross, how we long for lips and a heart and lungs to, to exalt your name. How weak is our praise compared to how immense your worth is. Lord, give us, give us lives and words and thoughts that answer to so great a salvation that has been accomplished on our behalf. May we live in such a way that shows we have been redeemed by so great a price. How could we consider the, the price of Christ's blood and then give ourselves to the very things that that blood has been shed to redeem us from? May the, the, the glory of a perfect, efficacious, indeed particular redemption give us strength to fight sin with all our might because we want you to have the prize which you are worthy of and we know that you give grace even moment by moment that you should have it, that it's not at all from us. Yes, our effort must be expended, but we know even that effort is a gift of grace. And so, Father, we pray that you would give grace. Give grace 
to see the cross for all that it is. Bring your people to the throne of grace day by day that they might feast and taste the goodness of God in this perfect redemption of their Savior. Give them the assurance, the great comfort and reassurance that they have indeed such a mediator appointed for them whom they receive by faith that has accomplished everything necessary for their salvation. And let them live in the power of that. Unto your honor and glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.